The day is March 3rd, 1946. The Second World War ended just six months ago, and the United States is on a path toward revitalization. As veterans returned home, the cultural landscape worked to find peace, comfort, and most importantly, routine. People went back to their jobs, families were reunited, and the important things that made life in America worth living went slowly back to normal. One of those things was America's pastime, baseball. As spring approached, teams began to gather their roster, began to revitalize their teams, and began to practice for the upcoming year of games ahead. In Florida, spring training had been regularly occurring in parks around the state for about 30 years. By the end of the 20s, quote, 10 of the 16 major league teams trained in Florida, end quote. When the war was over and the players returned and the audience was hungry for the game, the Boston Braves began training for the 1946 baseball season in Sanford, Florida. On March 3rd, however, the Boston Braves were not playing in Sanford. A minor league team called the Montreal Royals had a game. They were the farm team for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Anyone who would eventually get called up to the Dodgers had to show their chops with the Royals first. The Dodgers were the preeminent team in the league. They were still one of the relatively new Major League Baseball teams, however. The Boston Braves had been around since 1870, and the Dodgers didn't come around until 13 years later, in 1883. A former baseball player by the name of Branch Rickey was hired as the president and general manager of that team. Well, Branch Rickey was definitely a visionary. That is Rick Swain, by the way. He's an author based out of Tallahassee. He's written two books about the integration of baseball. Basically, he was when he was with the St. Louis Cardinals as their general manager, he had thought about bringing in some black players at that time. And that was in the 1930s. The, uh, man, the owner of the Cardinals kind of said, no, we're not going to do that. And, it was, and I guess Ricky decided it wasn't really the right time. In that era, Ricky was well known for his innovations in managing a major league team. He made the players start practicing more intensely, he started analyzing the statistics of the teams in the leagues, and most importantly, he became an advocate for the integration of Major League Baseball. You know, during the war, a lot of, uh, there, was, there was basically a lot of uh, regulations and laws that were changed. Black soldiers were going over there dying and fighting beside white soldiers. A lot of whites that had never even been exposed to black people were all of a sudden sharing quarters with them and, you know, sometimes, you know, sharing foxholes with them. In Ricky's mind, the key to breaking the color barrier in which only white players played in the major league was by hiring someone who would not only take the pressures of breaking the color barrier seriously, but also had the chops as a player to be invaluable when that time came. As white players found success in the major league teams, black players around the country formed their own system to participate in the sport. Due to the restrictions of Jim Crow laws and segregation, a safe and organized system was nigh impossible. Instead, the teams would play wherever they could against any team that would play them. By 1920, however, a group of teams were able to rally and create the Negro National League. This was thanks to a black baseball player who had spent the last few decades as a star on various teams named Rube Foster. The first decade of the league saw near total collapse. They couldn't quite make it work, as competition over salary moved players around frequently and the Great Depression nearly brought the league to a standstill. 
But there was money in baseball, and by the time World War II came around, the Negro League was an American institution all its own. At the end of the war, a confluence of events led to a major national change. The previous Major League Commissioner, Kennesaw Landis, passed away in 1944. He was a segregationist, and with his passing, integration advocates saw a chance to bring black players into the major leagues. One Negro League team, called the Kansas City Mavericks, had a player on its team who just might have been the right man for the job. He was recently out of the army, where he had confidently faced racism and cruelty with an iron demeanor. He played a strong season with the Mavericks and in 1945 took a meeting with the Brooklyn Dodgers. His name was Jackie Robinson. He and his friend Johnny Wright were moved to the Dodgers minor league farm team, the Montreal Royals. On March 3, 1946 in Sanford, Florida, Jackie Robinson went up to bat for the first time in the major league. A pitch was not thrown his way, however. It would be another two weeks before he got that chance. On March 17, 1946, 74 years ago last Tuesday, amid racist protests around Central Florida, a year before he would define American history by playing for the Dodgers, Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier in baseball for the first time at a field at Daytona Beach that now bears his name. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wade Five Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Jackie Robinson's first game, and the way Daytona Beach set the stage for the future of baseball to be changed forever. There is an amazing intersection in downtown Daytona right near the Halifax River. It's the intersection of Beach Street and Orange Avenue, and there are a handful of notable attractions. There's a statue right next to the river dedicated to Brownie, the town dog. Across the river is the Jackie Robinson Ballpark. My destination was on Beach Street, the Halifax Historical Museum. In the remnants of one of the oldest banks in Volusia County, the Halifax Historical Museum is probably one of the most unique museums I've ever been in. The main shell of the museum is in its preserved condition, with teller windows by the door, gilded ram horns around the ceilings, and colorful murals that were put up in the 1950s. The museum keeps boxes of Daytona's history scattered around the perimeter of the room, with Timaquan artifacts in one corner, a massive section dedicated to racing history, and a special collection of old toys in a, frankly, quite creepy attic. When I entered, I was directed toward a short film about Daytona's history. When I stepped away, the director of the museum, Fane LaVille, emerged from her office and pointed me back toward the screen. She made sure I watched every second of their special movie. I've been in a lot of museums, and unless they're supported by a federal grant or the city, the more unique ones often fall behind, or disappear entirely, but the Halifax Museum is supported by the city, meaning it gets to keep up its quirky facade with the original vault door still in place at the back door, a massive 70-year-old model of downtown by the register, and a collection of antique dresses preserved in glass cases. Once the movie was over, Fane brought me to a table in the middle of the museum. The guests that had milled around previously had left, so it was just me and Fane in the quiet of the Halifax Historical Museum. This building is, is was the, the bank. Was it the first bank in Daytona? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, 
but it did open in 1897. Okay. It is beautiful. And then they built this bank in 1910, mm -hmm. and they moved in either right the tail end of 1910, 1911. Fane grew up here in the 40s and 50s and has been working at this museum for many years. I'm just lucky. I'm just lucky to be here simply because it's not like your usual museum. Back when she was a child, there's one figure that she remembers distinctly leaving fingerprints all over the town. Her name was Mary McLeod Bethune, and while on the course of changing Florida forever, she set the stage for Jackie Robinson to get a fighting chance in Daytona a few decades later. Would you say that Mary McLeod Bethune's influence on the city is what led that to happen? Or I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, that's, you know, I grew up here. Right. I came here when I was few months old in 1940. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I very definitely do. She was a powerhouse. Yeah. A real powerhouse. In American history, there is no one quite like Mary McLeod Bethune. We are lucky that she called herself a Floridian. You've certainly heard her name. Bethune-Cookman is one of the most prominent and influential historically black colleges in the South. Though not the oldest in Florida, that honor goes to Edward Waters College in Jacksonville, the world that Mary McLeod Bethune created for herself in Florida is unprecedented. She was born in 1875 South Carolina, the youngest of 17 born to Samuel and Patsy McLeod. Her parents were once enslaved and, after emancipation, worked to buy their own land where Mary worked for years. She was educated in the South and went to missionary school in Chicago, where she eventually took up the profession of teaching, an occupation that would motivate her life for the following several decades. She and her husband, Albertus Bethune, moved to Palatka, a tiny town in Putnam County, Florida, around the turn of the century. Within a few years of arriving, her marriage disintegrated, and in an attempt to support her young son, she sought out a place to do what she believed she did best, education. She wasn't even 30 and Mary McLeod Bethune, newly divorced and raising a son on her own, opened a tiny school called the Daytona Literary and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls. She had five students. It was October 3rd, 1904. Around that time in Daytona's history, over half of the city's population was black. Many of the men had worked on farms in the neighboring rural counties, but with the citrus crash in 1895, most had lost their jobs. Daytona presented a new opportunity, but the Halifax River represented a segregating border. White businesses and white tourists were welcome to the eastern part of Daytona, now known as Daytona Beach. The black residents were not allowed over the bridge, especially at nighttime. Not too far from the ballpark where Jackie Robinson would eventually play, there was a church, the Mount Bethel Baptist Church, which was a focal point of the black communities around Daytona. The famous minister there, Howard Thurman, was born in Daytona, preached there, and wrote work that inspired the lives of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. Thurman preached at the Mount Bethel Church, and during some late Sunday services, Mary McLeod Bethune would arrive to speak, sing, and praise with the parishioners. By that time, Mary had become a crucial figure in the Daytona landscape. Three years before Mary was born, in 1872, Rev. S.B. Darnell opened the Cookman Institute in Jacksonville, named for another Rev. Alfred Cookman, who donated to the school's creation. 
At that time, it was the first higher education school put in place for black citizens in Florida. And it wasn't just for young people coming up in the world. Older citizens were welcome to take classes as well. The Cookman Institute became a stalwart organization in Florida until all the buildings were burned to the ground in the Jacksonville fire of 1901. The Institute did not disappear. It rebuilt and grew, and in 1923, they merged with Mary's own school. Bethune-Cookman College was formed, and with it, Daytona's character as a city was completely reshaped. By the time Jackie Robinson was even on his way to Daytona Beach, there was almost no city in Florida better suited for him and his royals to change baseball forever. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, better known as Jackie, was born on January 31, 1919. Growing up in Pasadena, California, Jackie was a skilled athlete, not just excelling in baseball, but in basketball, football, and track as well. At UCLA, he met his future wife, Rachel. He left school his senior year and played football in integrated leagues until eventually joining up with the Army in 1942. Two years into his service, he was boarding a bus in Texas and was demanded to move toward the back as was common in segregationist times. He refused and was sent to court. Though he was acquitted, historians mark this as a turning point for Jackie. It had hardened him to the cruelty of racism, and what came next was likely inspired by everything that he had learned during his time in the Army. Fast forward to 1945. Branch Rickey of the Brooklyn Dodgers recruits Jackie Robinson and a pitcher named Johnny Wright from the Negro Leagues to play for the Dodgers' farm team, the Montreal Royals. The Royals were playing a series of games in Florida in the spring of 1946 and arrived in Daytona Beach to start training. The Dodgers usually came down here for the spring training to Daytona. And about two or three weeks after Robinson was married, he and his wife came down. They had a terrible time. Yeah. Uh, took them 36 hours to get down here because they kept getting bumped off planes and put so that they could put white people on. When they finally arrived, there was no room in Daytona for them, or for anyone on the team for that matter. They had to go to Sanford to start training. That first attempt to play was there, in that field in Sanford. Two white men came to Jackie while he was on the field as he stepped to bat and threatened him. He had to get out of town now, or else. He acquiesced. In Jacksonville, a few days later, it just got worse. They usually would do is the, um, they'd have a split squad, squad games, and they um, they were supposed to go over to Jacksonville and play a play a game, and they got there and the park was locked up. <laughs> they didn't even, you know, they got to bust their guys all up um, from Daytona to Jacksonville, which, you know, wasn't that big a deal, but um, they got there to play the game, and, you know, it was locked up. They padlocked, nobody was there. They drove southwest to DeLand, and a game was on its way, only for the sheriff to turn them away because of Jackie's presence. All across Central Florida, the white men in charge of these cities and fields denied Jackie, Wright, and the Royals to break the wall down that they had worked so hard to burst through. As if it wasn't hard enough to break down the color barrier, the world that Florida presented was extremely cruel. Only one city really gave him an opportunity. On March 17, 1946, Jackie Robinson stepped up to bat in Daytona Beach. But Daytona Beach really, they never really had any problems 
in Daytona Beach. First game they played in Daytona Beach, Robinson played against uh, you know an inter-squad game between the Royals and the Dodgers. He was cheered by the fans. There was no no bad moments. They never had any problems with the Daytona Beach authorities. Uh, he didn't make any runs, <laughs> you know. Uh, he didn't think he played that well uh, in practice because of all the hullabaloo going on. He did not play really well. Uh, but he went ahead and, and just kept saying, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. As far as baseball games go, Jackie Robinson may not have played at his finest, but for the sport, Jackie had done the very thing Branch Rickey had hired him to do. He played. He was a black baseball player in 1946 in the South, and he played baseball. Well, uh, you know, he was representing his race, and I think that was probably the biggest thing. My reading, uh, between the lines, is that was the biggest thing going for him. He realized that you know, the future of young black baseball players rested on his shoulders. He was more combative than a lot of the other players who like the Dodgers signed at the same time. They had some other black players they signed. Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb well, both ended up to be great ball players. But they did not have the, they didn't seem to have the personality the, the determination that, that Robinson had. A little over a year later, on April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson played a game for the Brooklyn Dodgers against the Boston Braves at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. In that game as well, he didn't get a hit. It didn't matter. The barrier, now, was gone. Examining the events that led to this may feel lucky, a series of good people doing the right thing at the best time, but Jackie Robinson's place in history is no accident. Mary McLeod Bethune was the smartest person, the most determined teacher, whose impact on Daytona Beach reshaped the city. Branch Rickey was the kind of man who saw an opportunity to make the world a better place by opening doors in Major League Baseball that had not been opened before. If it ruined his career, fine. It was the right thing to do. Jackie Robinson was an athlete and a good man, a smart and cautious person who knew when to be careful and knew when to take the right risk. Every person involved saw the chance to make a new world, to build a society that they would like to live in. Like the brilliant, ingenious, quick people they were, each person's life was not random. They were the people they were always going to be. There's a statue now outside of the Jackie Robinson ballpark in Daytona Beach, across the river from the Halifax Historical Museum and the grave of Brownie the town dog. It features Jackie Robinson in his uniform, smiling and standing tall, but his hand is extended downward to two young boys smiling up at him. It's believed that they are meant to represent the kids who attended the game, some of whom were inspired by Jackie and went on to play baseball in their own careers. They benefited from the world he helped create. When we are gone, there may not be statues of us, but we can only hope that we, too, are remembered for the way the world is better, because we were once in it. I'll leave the final word with Mary McLeod Bethune. Yes, we have fought for America with all her imperfections. Not so much for what she is, but for what we know she can be. Perhaps the greatest battle is before us. The fight for a new America, fearless, 
three united Mali arms in which 12 million Negroes shoulder to shoulder with their fellow Americans will strive that this nation under God will have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people for the people and by the people shall not perish from the earth. This dream, this idea, this aspiration, this is what American democracy means to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump into this show, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Might I recommend some episodes similar to this one? There is the episode about the Grapefruit League from last spring that covers how spring training baseball came to Florida in the first place. And there's an episode from the end of last year about the unbeatable Miami Dolphins who have set a record in football that still has not been beaten. I'd like to give a special shout out to my guests this week, Rick Swain and Fane LaVille. Rick Swain is an author. He's written a recent book that I would love for you to check out. The name of the book is Do It For Chappie, The Ray Chapman Tragedy. Ray Chapman is the only Major League Baseball player to be killed by a pitched ball or by an on-field accident. And that happened in 1920. He was a a star player. He was a shortstop for the Cleveland Indians. and, And that team went on to win the pennant that year. If you were ever in Daytona, I cannot recommend the Halifax Historical Museum enough. It is one of the most unique museums I've ever found myself in. I could not have had a better time. And if you're there, ask for Fane. She is such a treat. In the midst of this national crisis, it has never been more important that you support your local community if you can. At the top of the description below, I've included some links for you to donate to food banks, donate to other organizations that are supporting, or even find a way to donate blood if you can. Your community needs you now more than ever, and if you've got an opportunity to do so, I recommend you take it. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show grow, and it brightens my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at wfmpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Her last name, Nix, is spelt N-I-X. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, Homosasa Springs and the animals that brought a city to life. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and be well. Have a good week.